Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Let's turn to our scriptures today. And if you've got your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at it in verses 1 through 7. We're going to take each church in the book of Revelation one Sunday at a time. And we're going to be looking at the church of Ephesus, the theologically correct church, but the loveless church. This is the kind of church you and I would want to join. Theologically correct, had everything going for them, working in the ministry, doing what they can, toiling, laboring for the Lord. But they lacked one thing. They were loveless. We're going to explore what that means. You have to look at the churches in three different ways when you're looking at the book of Revelation. There's seven of them, which means completeness, which means it's a message to the church, not only to those individual churches in history, but also to epochs or eras of time in church history. The way they're laid out in order is the way church history would go. So you're looking at what's called the apostolic era where the apostles were the leaders of the church. And then you will see these different eras as we go through. So that's the second way. The third way is personal application. The message to the church are to the members of the church, regardless of what era you live in. They're a message to us as an individual, and that's where we'll derive our personal application. So let's state right there what we're dealing with. We are dealing with believers who depart from their love for the Lord. Somehow, something gets in the way of their relationship with Jesus, and they fall away. Now, we're not talking about apostasy. We'll look at that later on with Laodicea. We are talking about their devotion and love for the Lord. They're theologically correct. The believer is theologically correct in this situation, but their devotion and affection for Jesus has waned. They don't love him like they used to. They're not as devoted. In fact, there's a disconnect between them and Jesus. Even though they're a believer and they're saved and on their way to heaven, they're disconnected from him. And so there's some distance in that relationship. They don't love him like they used to. And we have to get to the bottom of that because it is a major problem that needs to be addressed. Because if Christianity is all about being theologically correct, then these guys win. But Jesus has this issue with them that you don't love me like you used to. And in fact, he warns them that if you don't get this figured out, I will remove my lampstand from its place. I will remove your witness. I will remove your influence in the world around you if you don't figure this one out. We're going to explore that. We're going to get into depth because I don't want to get into that situation I've been in that situation. I know what it feels like. I've experienced it, and it's not a good place to be. You just lose your zest and your zeal for the Lord. And I'll explain how it happens. But we're going to explore it as we dealt with it in the text and then in history as well. So let's go to the first principle as we explore this. And the first principle comes out in the text is that Ephesus, and we got to get the name of Ephesus right. It means desired. And this dominated the era of the apostolic age from about A.D. 30, when the church began, to about 100 A.D., give or take. Now, I don't want to be legalistic on the numbers, but we're talking about an era or an epoch. 
Why 100? Because John died in about 98 AD. So the era is called the apostolic era, which signifies that the churches were ran by the apostles. Now, the name Ephesus means desired one or desired, which meant that it was desired because the apostles were running it. You can't get better theologically than the apostles, Paul and John and Peter, running the church. You're going to be theologically correct. You're going to have all your doctrine figured out, especially if Paul is your pastor or John is or whatnot. That's why this era is desired because of the teachers that were there protecting the church from false teachings. Well, that's what the name means, and let's look at the address. He says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. To the angel, and, and again, I want to reiterate what I said last week about the angel motif. This is not referring to the pastor. If it was referring to the pastor, it would have used the word in the Greek. It's using the word angel in the Greek. And what does that mean? We talked about this last week, so I don't want to explore too much of it, but here's the deal. The reason Jesus is informing this angel is that churches have angels assigned to them, and they are to look after that church and watch it and witness against it as a witnessing element. Because eventually, if that church needs to be judged or people in that church need to be judged and disciplined, that angel is responsible for doing that. So Jesus is informing this angel who watches the church of Ephesus of what's happening in the church. Now, here's the deal. If they do not correct this situation, this angel is responsible for meeting out this judgment. And by the way, he eventually did because the church of Ephesus does not exist anymore. And you'll see this in church history is that a church is good for, you know, maybe 100 years, 150, and then its light dies out. It's because that angel that's responsible for that church has judged it because of what they were doing in that church. So that's why he refers to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Let's talk a little bit about Ephesus, give you some historical background so you kind of get the picture about Ephesus. And uh, if you can look on this map, Ephesus was down here. It actually, in its early days, was a port city. And if you notice, these are the seven churches of Revelation. Um, the way they're laid out and how he'll address them is the postal route. You would start with Ephesus, which is the port city, and you would make a clockwise circle around to the churches. So if this letter was spread in this circle, as you can see. Ephesus, though, being on a port, had four major roads going to it. And you go today, and the silt has closed up the port. You don't see the port, really. Let me show you some pictures of what the ruins of Ephesus looked like. Ephesus... And these are some kind of ruins. You go to there today in Turkey. Ephesus was the second or third largest city in the whole Roman Empire. Rome was number one. Ephesus was number two. It was a huge capital of Asia Minor. Huge. It was kind of like our New York. Okay? So Paul decides to go there and plant a church there in New York, so to speak. It was at the crossroads of civilization. So you go there today, and you can see the magnificent streets, and the structures are still there. And you can see the statues that existed. Here's the road that goes down through Ephesus. There was the library back there. had a magnificent library. This is, and stop right here, this was the church. Not the church that Paul and John were at, but the second century church. This is where the church remained until the Goths destroyed it. 
And this is where a lot of the Christians in Ephesus... Ephesus was a major Christian central place where a lot of missionary work was done there. So here's the remains of the church, and you can see kind of what it looked like, and they had pillars. It was actually magnificent to look at. Let's go to the next one. Again, this is the library, and then the synagogue was right there by it. Let's go to the next one. Now, this is interesting. This is the amphitheater that still exists today. This amphitheater in Ephesus sat 25,000 people. Ephesus was huge. Now, I want you to look real closely and imagine this. When the Apostle Paul was there, he was there for three years, and he kept preaching for three years and started the church in Ephesus. He caused a problem with the worshipers of Diana or Artemis, which was the god, the major patron god of the city. And if you remember in Ephesus, in the book of Acts, Acts 19 and 20, Paul caused a major eruption because the silversmith, Demetrius, caused a riot because he was leading people to the Lord, and they didn't want to buy the little idols that the silversmith sold. And so they caused a riot because of the Apostle Paul. They actually dragged some of Paul's companions into this amphitheater. And the riot broke out, and they told Paul not to go in because they were, they were going to kill him. But things kind of calmed down. The city official says, you guys need to calm down. You're out of order. There's no pro-councils here. Stop this. So they got out of there with their lives, but this was the theater. There's where they were bringing some of the Christians there in the book of Acts, and it still stands today. Amazing. Got a couple more pictures, I think. This is Nike, the goddess Nike, because it was very pagan. The, the goddess of uh, victory was worshipped there, and a lot of paganism, but along with the paganism was gross immorality, extremely gross immorality. I want you to think about this. Heraclides, a philosopher of that day that lived in Ephesus, he was a Greek philosopher, not a believer. He even said the Ephesians are so bad, they're full of darkness and vileness. He said the morals of the Ephesians are lower than animals. And he goes, the inhabitants of Ephesus were fit only to be drowned. That's how the Greek philosopher Heraclitus saw Ephesus. So, again, think about Christianity being there. Here's the goddess Artemis, or in Roman pantheon of gods, it's Diana. So, Artemis is the Greek god, Rome, the Roman god is Diana, full of immorality. One of the things that went on in the temple, and I think I have a, a picture of the temple, this is what it would have looked like. The temple there in Paul's day and John's day was one of the seven wonders of the world. Everybody went to Ephesus to see the temple of Diana or Artemis. It was massive. This was bigger than the Parthenon in Greece. It was so large. That's why everyone came to see it. But, and here's a remodel of it today in Turkey, and that's the size and the grandeur of it, but not even close. That's made out of stone. They had encased it with gold, and some of the pillars that are still there in one of the museums today, they were made of stone, like emerald and stuff. Amazing workmanship went into it. Okay, here's the interesting thing about this place. This was the only free city that was allowed to be free in the Roman Empire, which means they weren't under Roman control. Rome had allowed them to have a free city. And you know what happened in this city? It became a sanctuary city. Every criminal running from the law went to Ephesus because it became a sanctuary place, kind of like how San Francisco is. 
kind of how like L.A. is, Sanctuary City. Everybody went there, so you had, you had a major criminal element in Ephesus, major criminal element, and Rome let them go. They could go there for sanctuary and asylum. Along with that, the banking institution was right there in the temple as well. And so the finances, the asylum-seeking, the gross immorality was all centered around the temple. And in Ephesus, this is what Paul and them had to deal with. So a criminal element, violence, immorality, paganism, it was all over the place. I think we have a couple more. This is the place where John is buried, supposedly. And if you go to Ephesus today, John got off the island of Patmos and went back to Ephesus because that's where he was a pastor at. And so the burial site of John is there. Again, we can't be fully sure whether or not he's buried there, but tradition has it. The early church buried him there. And so in this place, uh, you have this tablet, and on the top it says St. John, Tomb of St. John. There's a better shot of it right there. And so if you go take the uh, cruise ship to do the missionary journeys of Paul, this is where they'll take you, and you'll see the burial spot of John. He was the only disciple to not be martyred. All right, so that's a picture of this area, and I want to do that so you get the flavor of where this church is located at. It's like located in New York City, if that can kind of give you some context. Okay, second point then, after we got that set. Jesus is described as the son of man of Daniel 7, 13 through 14, in terms of his willingness to act in judgment when this kind of behavior occurs. He says, these things say he who holds... And this is called, this idea in the Greek is holding is controlling, possessing, protecting provision. The seven stars in his right hand, talking about the angels. He controls the angels of the churches to do his will, right? Whether it's judgment or protection. And then he says, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The idea of walking in the midst of the churches, the, the, the churches are the seven golden lampstands. And the fact that Jesus is pictured as walking, in the midst of the churches means that he is willing and ready to take action in judgment, and he is fully aware of what's happening. That's what the message is there. I just want to get that across before we move on. So let's go to point number three real quick. Then Jesus commends the church for condemning false teachers' teachings and for not creating unnatural distinctions between the clergy and laity. Watch what he says. He commends them for this. He goes, I know, refers to his omniscience, his interest, and his his evaluation of their works. He goes, I know your works. The idea of works means deeds, activity, ministry. This is an extremely active church, very active. This is the kind of church you wanted to be involved in if you were doing ministry. And then it says, I know your labor, which means that they're working hard to the point of weariness. They are They're not sitting back on the spiritual couch. These guys work hard. And your patience, and they're bearing up under the responsibility of ministry. Week in, week out, day by day, they're bearing up underneath that. And then he commends them that you cannot bear or tolerate those who are evil. Remember the evil people in Ephesus, the criminal element, the immorality? He says, they don't bear up with that immorality stuff. And then he goes, and you have tested or tried those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. So then not only will they not tolerate gross immorality, they will not tolerate false teachers or teachings. At this time, there was a lot of people claiming to be apostles, and they were not. And a lot of 
false teaching was popping up, but because the apostles were there, it kept everything down theologically that was an error. So the apostles would correct, and this, this happened constantly. Now, I want you to think about this kind of church. It's probably Priscilla and Aquila who started the embryonic seed of this church. Later on, Apollos, who Paul corrects, is their pastor. Apollos was well-versed in the Scriptures, and Paul gives them some more information. After Apollos, the Apostle Paul met with some of John's disciples and converted them over to the Messiah, and that started the church. Paul, now you think about this, Paul then founded this church. He's the pastor of the church. Paul stays there for three years. Think about that. Paul is your pastor. But it got better. Paul left and, and went on to more issues. He left Tychicus there for a while, and then Timothy came. And Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus. First and Second Timothy had already been written. So Timothy was holding down the fort in Ephesus. And then when Timothy goes off the scene, when 70 AD happened, John moved from Jerusalem to Ephesus and became the pastor there after Timothy. Oh, my goodness. Paul is my pastor, then Timothy takes over, and then John is my pastor? You can't get better than that. That's the church you want to be at, right? You can see why they held back the false doctrine. They had hardcore apostles holding things back or apostles of the apostles holding things back. So they're commended. He goes, and you have persevered and have patience. You've dealt with all the persecution in your city, and you've made it through because you were holding down the fort, and have labored for my namesake and not become weary. So they're still fighting. They're still working. And he adds one more thing. Let's jump to verse 6. He adds one more commendation. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't have too much information about the Nicolaitans. Some scholars say that Nicolaitans was allowing them to practice immorality And they said, you know, they could still be right with God, that you're all under grace. That's kind of like the hyper-grace movement that's happening in our country today, um, which actually Billy Graham's grandson is leading that charge of hyper-grace movement, that because we're under the blood, we're under grace, we can just act and do anything we want to do, and it's all good. But really, we don't have a lot of information about the Nicolaitans. What we do is derive from the Greek word Nicolaitans kind of what they were up to. And Nico is derivative of Nike, which means victory or over something. You're conquering something. And laity means the common person. So it's overcoming or victory over the common person or one who rules the laity. I think we have a pretty good understanding is this. What was starting to pop up was a distinction between the clergy and the average person. And Paul and Timothy and John are holding that back, saying, you're not supposed to do that. Let me make a personal application about this. When you see a church and the pastor dresses in religious garb, that's the practice of Nicolaitanism. Whether he's wearing a robe or some vestments or something like that, that is wrong. The pastor is not to be put in a category that's different than the laity. Otherwise, you have the Nicolaitanism. And he'll say later on to another church, I hate that. Don't do that. And so that starts trying to enter into the church, but they have held that back. Okay, 
They've done so well, but here's the condemnation. And number four, Jesus condemns the church for not loving him or his word. This is at the heart of the message right here. Verse four, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left or departed. That word left means I'm personally responsible for moving away from the Lord. It's not that the Lord has moved. The person has moved or the church has moved, and they're responsible. It's not a lost love. It's a left love. You've left your first love. What is this idea of first love? What is the greatest commandment? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, right? And second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? This is the first and the second great commandment. The first great commandment is to love the Lord. He is the priority. And he's saying, you've left your first love, the highest priority you have departed from, and you're personally responsible for this. Okay, let me give you some background so you understand what's happening here. This is the second generation of Christians. Pay particular attention to that historical note. Yes, Paul, John, Timothy are your pastors. Let's say you joined that church in 30 AD, so to speak, or 40 AD or 45 AD, whenever it was established, going off the top of my head, and you're there, and then you have kids grow up in that church, and they've known nothing other than Paul. They've known nothing other than Timothy, and they've known nothing other than the apostle John as their pastor. Guess what the second generation tends to do? Take it for granted. You and I would die to have John as our pastor, to have Paul, because we know what it is to have be under a bad pastor, under those clowns that are out there. We know what it's like. We've all been to those bad churches. We get that. So yeah, man, if I get to be under Paul, man, wouldn't that be great? But what if you're a kid raised under the Apostle Paul? The tendency would be that child would take it for granted because they just grew up like that. Parents and grandparents, note this. If you're the pioneer that started Christianity in your family, you're the Abraham and Sarah, you stopped the cycle, you changed it in your life, be very careful. Your kids and grandkids might take it for granted. They might take growing up in a solid church for granted. They might take growing up in theology for granted. It's old hat. I've heard it before. And with familiarity breeds contempt. See, there's a difference between a pioneer and a settler, isn't there? The pioneers are out there gutting it out in the trenches, working hard, getting things established, aren't they? Then the settlers come, and they didn't build what you built. They just inherited it. Did nothing for it. They weren't in the trenches with you. They weren't struggling with Paul fighting the Ephesian immorality and things like that. No, no, things had been settled by then. This is second generation. This can happen to third and fourth generation. And then it's just handed to them. All this great theology the Apostle Paul and John had taught had just simply been, here you go. What happens? Easy come, easy go. See, they weren't there on the ground floor with Paul when he started it. They weren't there. They didn't see what it was like. They didn't know how hard it was to fight 
And that's what we're happening in America. You have Christian generations growing up in the church, good churches, solid churches, easy come, easy go. I'm used to it. And before you know it, their love for Jesus wanes because they don't know how it is to be without him. And when you don't know how it is to be without him, you don't know what you have. Second generation, that's the risk. That's the risk of every parent and grandparent who needs to pass on that baton is to make sure they understand what has been given to them and the amount of responsibility that's on their shoulders. You don't take it for granted because what will happen? Let's just use the business world. Have you seen restaurants in town that, man, you love going there and they have great Mexican food and, or great Italian food or great Chinese food, and you find out the story behind it. These are the original owners. They started this restaurant, and the food is fantastic. And then what happens? Their kids start taking over, right? It happens constantly. Their kids take over. And, man, you, you get a great chicken parm there, but then, oh, we're, we're, we're so-and-so. Well, his son's taking over. Oh, okay. That chicken parm doesn't taste the same. That spaghetti doesn't taste the same. What's he doing? Well, he's trying new things. He wants to break out and do the thing. Yeah, but that was good like it was. And what happens to the business? Second generation. Because you know why? We handed it to them. They didn't do nothing to earn it. They weren't in the trenches. See, I can take the secular world and then use that as a spiritual concept because that's what's happening to Ephesus. Growing up with the Apostle John as your pastor, they didn't know any different. And the love is not there. They wane, and they become the settlers. Easy come, easy go. How does this happen? Not only just second generation, but can it happen to us? Yeah, it can happen to us. I really want to drill in on the application of this because this is a real problem and it can happen to everybody sitting here, is that our lack of love starts happening in our lives with Jesus. It comes down really simple to a question of motivation and priority. That's what it comes down to. And there are several things I want to point out to you because the Scriptures reveal this. This is extremely important of how we lose love. The first thing is, the reason people lose love for Jesus, even though they're a believer, is disobedience. Disobedience, just flat-out disobedience. I want you to see from the Scriptures yourself how this happens. This is in John chapter 14, 21 through 23. Just read, as, read along with me. He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. You catch that? He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I'll, I'll show him more of myself. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and, and we will come to him and make our home with him. It's talking about fellowship. Okay, the opposite is true then. If you love me, keep my commandments. Well, those who don't keep his commandments don't love him. John picks up this point. 1 John 2, 3 through 5. Now, by this, we know that we know him. They're talking about fellowship, not salvation. If we keep his commandments. If you say you're in fellowship, you're going to keep his commandments. He who says, I know him in fellowship, not salvation, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him or makes its place and does its work in his heart. 
By this we know that we are in him. Did you catch that? John, who's writing 1 John, who wrote the book of Revelation, is explaining in 1 John how you lose your love. Something has taken the priority over Jesus, and it's disobedience. It's some particular thing that the believer likes to do that is out of step, that is out of boundaries, out of limits. Whether that's being self-centered, controlling, unkind, abusive, unfaithful, doing their own agenda, whatever it is, huh, that's what's getting in the way. But Brandon, how do these people sleep at night? These are, you're talking about Christians, right? This is what we're referring to Christians. Why are they putting their sin above Jesus? Simple. They've done research on this. Do you know what the person thinks about? The person starts thinking that God is like them or thinks like them, and that God has given them permission to do this particular thing. They make God into their own image. Oh, that's how they sleep at night? Yeah, that's how they sleep at night. Yeah, that's how they keep doing what they're doing. But they don't love Jesus. Second thing, worldliness. See, all these things are putting something ahead of Jesus, worldliness. James 4.4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now jump to 1 John 2.15, says the same thing almost. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Did you see that? If you put the world, the things of the world, ahead of Jesus, you, of course you're going to love the world. Why? What did, Jesus, what did Jesus say even about one aspect of the world, about money? You cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one or hate the other, but you cannot serve both. And people who become worldly, Christians who become worldly, they like that affection that the world gives them. And their affection is drawn to the world and what it gives them for that. Interesting, a book called Scully that I heard about, it's a dialogue between Steve Jobs, who was the founder of Apple Computers, and John Scully, who was the president of Pepsi, and they were having this dialogue, and Steve Jobs was trying to convince him to come over to help him at Apple and leave Pepsi. And this is what Steve Jobs said to Scully. He says, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, or do you want a chance to change the world? Now, that's on a secular standpoint, but I want you to think about that. That's how the world seduces The world comes to you and says, do you really want to spend all your time serving Jesus? Because you're not getting anything out of it. Your life is the same. In fact, your life is getting worse. That's that's Satan talking to you. And what Satan will try to convince you is it doesn't pay to serve Christ. Because when you do that, you're at a disadvantage with the world. You don't get the worldly advantages. So here's the question about worldliness. And I don't want to explore it too much because I don't have time. But a man once said... I'm not afraid of succeeding in life. I'm afraid of succeeding at the wrong things in life. It's true. If we become worldly, there's no doubt our love for Christ will wane because we will love the things of the world. But you'll start succeeding at the wrong things. You're off the path. That's what causes it. Third thing, not growing. Not growing. Second Peter 1 
5 through 9 says this, But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness love. He just keeps piling on, on and on and on. For if these things are yours and abound, what he's saying is if you grow, this is all about sanctification, if you grow, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten he was cleansed from his old sins. It's interesting that Peter makes that point, they have forgotten. See, when you don't grow, you'll get amnesia. You'll have memory lapses. What do you mean? Spiritual memory lapses. That's what he's talking about. They forget where they have come from. They forget what Christ did on the cross for them. You're like, really? Yeah, they do. That's what his point is. And they actually become blinded and myopic. They can't see anymore what's happening around them. Forgetting is a major problem. Do you remember God dealing with Israel constantly? Remember, remember, remember. And Moses would take Israel back and redo the story of Exodus and redo this, bringing them into land and just keep reminding them because they had a propensity to forget. Because when you get caught up in the world, you forget. You forget the time that he pulled you out of the pit and saved your life. You forget that. That comes from not growing. Look what Hebrews 5 talks about in this not growing issue. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, talking to people about maturity, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Here's the problem about amnesia. You have to go back and relearn it all again. Wow. See, when you don't grow, most people think like this. Well, I'll grow. I'll grow. I'm good here because I'm, I'm getting up to an issue that I don't like and it's too hard for me and I don't want to push through that. I'm good. I'll just settle in outside of Canaan. I won't go into the promised land. I'm going to settle right here. I'm good. Here's the deal. You don't get to stay there. What happens spiritually is actually you start going backwards and regressing. You'll start forgetting. All that stuff that you learned coming up here, you will forget. You, what you don't move on with and, and build on, you lose. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, the reason really you don't love Jesus is you've forgotten everything. You've had to go back. We've got to give you milk again. We've got to restart the whole thing over again. That's scary. But see, growth, you, this is what you've got to understand about your growth, your sanctification, your becoming like Christ. Growth will give you the capacity to love Jesus more. See, what happens when you go backwards, you're losing the capacity to love. Do not think that the love we're talking about here, that you don't love Jesus, is an emotional feeling. We're not talking about that at all. It's agape. has no emotions attached to it. So here's the deal. We as believers have been loved by God, and he wants us to love him back. The only way we can love him back is we have to grow in our capacity to love. You actually have to learn how to love properly. Let me give you an example. A lot of people, they'll say, I love my children. I love them to death. I'll die for my children. I believe they would. But they don't know how to love properly. What they're saying is, I care for my children, but 
Caring is different than loving properly. There's a biblical way of loving people properly. I don't doubt that a parent cares for their child or a grandparent does. They just don't know how to love biblically. That's what we're talking about. So people say, well, I love Jesus. No, biblically, do you know how to do that? Do you know what that looks like? Do you know how to love your spouse? Do you know how to love other people? Good bet is they don't. They care, but they don't know how to do it. So what happens is growth from spiritual maturity increases our capacity because it teaches us how to love agape. How do you learn how to love your neighbor? Try that one on for size or an enemy or whatever. That's hard. Agape them. Seek the best, especially if they don't deserve it, if they're not good to me, if they're bad to me, and I'm supposed to love my neighbor and love my enemy. That's hard. That's a hard concept. The world doesn't understand that. The world only understands I love you if you love me back. That's what the world loves. But what if you don't get loved back? Wow, that's a whole new ball game. See, that's what growth does. If you want to love Jesus more, you have to grow. Fourth, a lack of love for other believers. A lack of love for other believers. 1 John 4, 20 through 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can, he, how can the love of God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must, also, must love his brother also. So what happens is hatred starts happening in the heart of the believer, and they hate other people. They hate others. Yeah, it's a very common thing. Yeah, hatred. They look to do someone ill. They desire revenge. They want pain to be inflicted on them. They want them to fail. They're angry at other people's choices. They envy envy people's successes and windfalls. They won't forgive, and they feel helpless or controlled by someone, so they start hating Why would he address hating if it doesn't happen to believers? It does. The minute you start hating, your love for Jesus will stop because you can't hate others and say, I love Jesus. If you hate others, you're falling away. That's his point. You're disconnected from God if you're messed up horizontally with other people. Number five, not handling persecution or trials with God's grace. Hebrews 12, 15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. What is this talking about? The problem is, if we don't handle problems in our life correctly, a root of bitterness will start in our heart, and you won't see Jesus as lovable anymore. You won't want to be in connection with him because... If you don't appropriate the tools and talent that God gives us to deal with our problems, the grace and the mercy, you will get a distorted view of Jesus. How does this happen? And a lot of believers have it. They see Jesus as the one who's doing bad to them, that the problems in their life are coming from him. And their mentality starts, I'll be nice to Jesus if he starts being nice to me. Really? You have a distorted view of Jesus. That person who's causing you problems is not Jesus. It's the devil. It's other people in this world who are evil. It ain't Jesus. But the problem is they start thinking that Jesus is harming them and hurting them and doing things on purpose. No, no doubt God disciplines us. But these kind of people, they blame God for everything. Every bad thing that's happening in their life, that's Jesus doing it. He just doesn't like me, so I don't like him. 
Number six, making others the priority instead of Jesus. Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Jump to Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let me ask you this question. People who fall away from Jesus, and if this is their problem, what happens is they put somebody, a person, ahead of Jesus. What did he say in that text? You can't put anyone in front of me. I am the priority. What happens? It's very natural, but it happens. For parents, our children become idols. The cult of the child is the major problem in Christianity in America because the child rules the house. We do everything according to what this child wants. That's an idol. It's idolatry. If you're making your children into idols, and it needs to stop immediately because what's happening is your love for Jesus is being, uh, having a wedge put in between you and Jesus with a child. Or it could be a spouse. Spouses do this. They make their spouse an idol, and that gets in front of them and Jesus. They have a relationship to Jesus through their spouse. Or it's their parents. They can't make a move in life without their parents giving the okay, or somebody in their family giving them the okay. They're under bondage with some other person who's become a god to them. It's not Jesus. No wonder they don't love Jesus. He's not number one. He's not their god. Someone else is their god. That's Jesus' point to us. You cannot put anyone in front of me. Not your children, not your spouse, not your parents, not siblings, no one. I occupy space number one. I am the priority, and you make decisions in life based on me. Number seven, ungrateful due to lack of seeing the depth of personal sin. Luke 7, 4, 7 says this, To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Did you catch that? He was talking about the woman, you know, that was a prostitute that came to him. What happens is when you forget, you start minimizing your sin. It wasn't that bad. And you forget about being forgiven and the blood that was shed for you. And you love little if you don't understand how much you've been forgiven. People who understand the depths of their sin and what has occurred with the cross and how much had to be shed for them love lots. But those who minimize their sin, I'm just kind of a good person. Yeah, I'll get on this train. I'm all right. They love little. Don't forget the depths of where we were at. We were in that miry pit. Number five, and we'll finish on this. Jesus exhorts individuals to repent for this lack of love for him and threatens to remove their witness. He continues, he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. What is the first works? Do what you did to build the relationship with me initially. Go back to that and rebuild and reconnect to me. All the stuff I mentioned, get out of your life. You have put something ahead of me. And he says, move that out and make me the priority and do the initial things you once did. And here's the Reward, number six, or he goes, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lamps. And the idea is I will remove your witness. I will remove your influence if you don't do this. Now jump to number six. Jesus promises individuals the privilege of eating the tree of life in the eternal order if they will make Jesus their first love. Verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to him who overcomes. Overcomes what? This issue and maintains it. I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That's the promise. What do you mean? What is this idea? It's real vague, and some of it is a mystery. But the paradise of God has moved itself from Eden and is now in the, in the third heaven with God. It's the new Jerusalem, right? And he is saying in the new Jerusalem is the tree of life now that was in the garden at one point in time. And the tree of life, as you remember, uh, would have kept Adam and Eve perpetually alive. Okay. We have now been given eternal life since we're in Messiah. But now he's saying in the new Jerusalem, the tree of life there is there. And these people who overcome this issue will have a special privilege in the eternal order of being able to eat from the tree of life. Now, food is an enhancement. Food is fellowship. I don't know all that's involved here because it doesn't explain it. But I will say this. That's how most rewards are in the Bible. They're very vague because I think there's more to it than meets the eye. All we can say is believers who keep their love for Jesus and don't do all the what we talked about and maintain it, they will have a special privilege to the right of the tree of life. It is a reward for those who overcome this issue. Those who don't overcome it will not have access to the tree of life. Now, they have eternal life, but there's a special privilege for these believers who do it. And that's about all I can say about the tree of life. I don't know all that's entailed theologically in this. Fellowship, some type of privilege, I'm, I'm not quite sure. But I can tell you this, if it's Jesus telling me it's a good reward, I'm going to believe him. He summed it up like this. He said it very simply. It's simple yet profound. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. He's saying, put me first, put the kingdom of God first, and then all the other priorities will then line up perfectly. You want to get the priorities in your life straightened out? Love Jesus, number one, and everything will just fall into place. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.